Um, Chris mentioned last week that we're moving into a study of the Gospel of Matthew. Is anybody really excited about that? I am so excited, I can't even tell you. When I first began to study under my dad in a class that we called the School of the Spirit, I was 15 years old and uh, would would go into these classes and, and learn and memorize scriptures. And one of the things that we were assigned to do um, right off the bat, everybody who were, and how many of you have taken the School of the Spirit with my dad? I took it with Mr. Kenyon, I remember that. Pastor Rodney was there, Ben and I did it together. Um, you are assigned a long-term passage of scripture to memorize right off the bat. Um, ben, do you remember what yours was? Not necessarily. It was a long time ago. 15 was a long time ago, Ben. Oh, geez. Pastor Rodney, was it Ephesians for you? Yep. I remember Mrs. Smith was Psalm 119 because while she was learning it, she had us learn it in school. So we had to memorize large portions of Psalm 119. For me, the portion, the portion of scripture that my dad gave me to memorize was Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, 111 scriptures. And by the grace of God, only, and a lot of help from my daughter, I did memorize all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And um, when we were, were talking about what we would study over the next few weeks, even year, and Pastor Chris suggested that we talk about Matthew, I was reminded of the Sermon on the Mount and all of the power that's in it, all of the message that, that Jesus brought to his people. And um, I'm reminded that I haven't kept up on my memorization. So hopefully, over the next few weeks and months as we study Matthew, God will return all that he gave to me in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So I've been interested, because I was really thinking about it this week, how excited I am about this, because we have spent the better part of the last year and a half, maybe even more, studying who God is, <clears throat> what his attributes are, what his names are, what his character is, right? Who he is. We spent a lot of time on, on God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, and what he is and what he does for us, right? And then we transitioned into who we are in Christ, who we are because of who God created us to be. And we talked about it, and we've not exhausted everything, but we certainly really got deep into this, didn't we? And I was thinking about the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism. Jesus, when he is with John the Baptist and he goes down in the waters of baptism, what happens? God the Father speaks from heaven God the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of the dove, and they proclaim over Jesus the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he says, listen to him. Jesus, that first thing, so he's 30 years old, right? He's about to start his ministry, and he goes and he meets John the Baptist, and he goes down into the waters of baptism, and he comes up with this calling, with this anointing, with this proclamation over him. This is who you are, and this is because of this, this is what you're going to do. So what's the first thing Jesus does? Does he go out and call his disciples and begin his ministry? Does he go out healing and, and performing miracles and proclaiming the kingdom of God, all of those things? That's not the first thing he does. <clears throat> what is the first thing he does in Matthew chapter 4? He goes up into the desert to be tempted of the devil, which is what Chris was talking about last week, right? Now, does anybody ever think about that? Why was the first thing Jesus does after he's proclaimed over, it's proclaimed over his life, who he is, what his calling is, what his mission in life is, the first thing he does is go up into the wilderness, spend 40 days up there without food, without comfort, away from people, no affirmation of who he is, and allow himself to be tempted of the devil. That's interesting, isn't it? We're going to talk about that, but then the very first thing he does when he comes down, he calls a couple of disciples, and then he goes up into the mount, uh, into um, a mountain area, and he sits down, and all the multitudes gather around him, and he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to suggest to you right off the bat that this is a pattern that we need to pay attention to, that God 
has a calling on your life that we've talked about for a year now. God has a call on your life. He has a purpose for your life. He has a mission for your life. And then there's going to be a wilderness time. And then you're going to start to walk in it. I'm going to suggest that to you, and then I'm going to prove it, okay? Let's read Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so he came out of the wilderness. He goes up into the mountain, and this is what it says. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up into the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you sent Jesus to earth to demonstrate what it was to be a son of God. We are so grateful for his example, Lord. Lord, these first words of this sermon, God, may they just penetrate our spirit today. May they reveal to us in a new and powerful way what you have called us to be, how we can walk in it. Give us strength to perform all that you have created for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, first thing Jesus says when he sits down, the Beatitudes, we call these, right? I've heard them say the Beatitudes, right? How we're supposed to be as children of God. Presumably, Jesus has just spent time 40 days in the presence of the Lord, 40 days in the wilderness, and he's come down, and these first eight verses are his, his kind of like summation of what he learned. I believe that that's probably true his summation of who he is, okay? So we're going to talk about them, but before we do, I, I, you guys know this about me, I always like to, I like stories. Anybody in here with me, you like stories, you like narrations that teach you something about God and his word. And so, and I always like to also go back into the Old Testament and discover, like, because the Old Testament is concealed and, and the New Testament reveals the truths in the Old Testament, right? And so things, everything in the New Testament was, ex- was shown in the Old Testament through narrations, through stories. And so we can go back and find out the truth of what Jesus is saying. Sometimes if we look at what people in the Old Testament did or, or did not do, did well or did very unwell, not well. And as I was praying and, and, and studying the Beatitudes this week, God kept reminding me of King David. I love King David. My dad talked about him and, and his um, relationship with Jonathan a couple weeks ago, and I've just been mulling over that ever since I heard dad's sermon. And so it was fresh in my mind, and I was thinking about the fact that like Jesus, who was Jesus, remember we just said he was anointed and appointed at his baptism, And then he goes and spends 40 days in the wilderness before he actually begins to walk in his anointing and appointing. So King David is anointed. They believe he was anointed between the age of 10 and 15, somewhere in there. I mean, we know he was a young boy, right? We know he was a shepherd boy. We know he was not one that Samuel actually thought would be eligible for the kingship. He was young, 10, 15 years old. That's crazy. Did he become king when he was anointed? Was it right away? No, 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 no. Not even close. Not even close. So he was anointed between 10 and 15, and then it was between the ages of 16 and 19 that he killed Goliath. Okay? 
It's after he kills Goliath that he he kind of joins the army under King Saul, and he becomes uh, this mighty warrior under King Saul, and he marries Michal and all that. And and that happens between the ages of like 17 and 22, okay? So at 22, David has been anointed for 10-ish years. He's had this call on his life. He's been operating as, a, you know, a, a warrior in the, in the kingdom of God, right? He's been operating as a servant to Saul. He's been doing all of the things that he probably assumed would qualify him for kingship one day. But he didn't grasp the kingship. He didn't try and usurp Saul in any way. In fact, he supports Saul all along, doesn't he? So where, where does that get him? In really good standing with Saul, Right? Saul lets him marry McCall, his daughter, and he elevates him to his right hand, and he says, yes, this David is going to replace me one day when I'm old and gray and I've served the Lord well. I will pass the kingship on to him. Is that what happens? Not at all, right? And we talked about this last time. Uh, I think it was last time I preached somewhere in there, that at 22 years old, David finds himself running from Saul who's trying to kill him. Not because David had done anything wrong. We have to realize this. David had not done anything wrong. In fact, he had done everything right up until this point. And because he had done everything right, because he was operating under his understanding of who God had called him to be, Saul tries to kill him. Saul goes after him. We're just going to read a few passages um, concerning David's life here. Let's start in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David departed from there. This is from a conversation he had with Jonathan. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers in all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Okay. (laughs) David goes to a cave. He left the palace, and he goes to a cave... And while he's in the cave, his family comes, because that's what family does, right? We rally around one another when we're in trouble. So his brothers, even though they had been suspicious of him when he first was called, now they're on his side. Now they come to him to help him. Yay for family. And they bring a bunch of people with them. People in distress, people in debt, people who were bitter in soul. Yay! How would you like to have that as your entourage, living in caves with all these people who are bitter and angry and poor? Yippee-skippy, right? It says, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. 400 men who were angry and bitter and poor. They had nothing. These are the guys who come to hang out with him in the caves. Yay. Now, it doesn't mention women, but we do know from later accounts that there were all the wives and children there, too, living in these caves, bitter and angry. Maybe they had a gripe against Saul. Maybe, maybe they had been, you know, taxed or something, and they were, I don't know. I don't know why they're this way, but this is who he gets. Now, we know what happens. I, I think sometimes we have this like snapshot where we look at, we look at David and his entire life in one, you know, all 70 years or so of his life and we go, oh, we know what happens. It was all happy. We don't think about the fact that here David is in this situation. All he knows is that he's being mistreated. All he knows is that there's the call of God on his life, but that people in his life were not allowing him to operate in the call of God on his life. And he has no idea if or when he's going to be able to actually fulfill God's call in his life. And now not only is he, God, he has really good reason to be bitter and angry and frustrated, right? frustrated with Saul, frustrated with God, and here he is with a whole bunch of other people who are bitter and frustrated. Great. All right? Now, we know what happens in these caves, right? But let's look um, first at 1 Samuel um, 23, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. So in, in chapter 22, in the beginning of 23, Saul's after him. It's not enough that Saul has ousted him. It's not enough that Saul sent him to the caves. Now Saul actually wants to kill him. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. 
So a lot of interesting things that happen in the wilderness, guys. A lot of interesting things in Scripture that happen in the wilderness, including, you know, Jesus' 40 days. But here David's in the wilderness. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. I want I throw this in here because I want to point out, this is what Dad was talking about a couple of weeks ago, right? That the covenant that Jonathan establishes with David and that Jesus fulfills with Paul in the New Testament. Just, it's there, right? But also, there's this situation where David is probably pretty discouraged. And God sends Jonathan to David. Now Saul's looking for him. Saul, Jonathan's father, is looking for David to kill him. He cannot find him, but Jonathan knows where he is. And Jonathan does not turn David over to his dad, knowing that Jonathan would then be king after, jo- after Saul, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? As a true follower of God, as a true brother to David, he goes down to David and he strengthens him in God. It says he strengthened his hand in God. And he proclaims over him, you will be king. What God told you 12 years ago, 13 years ago, that's still going to come to pass. I'm going to strengthen, I'm going to remind you who you are. This is what God does to us. Even at our times in the wilderness, he still strengthens our hand in God. You know how he does that? With each other. Sending our brothers and sisters, sending our covenant partners. He sends somebody to you who says, no, I know that you look around you and you see caves, but I'm going to tell you right now that the truth is God still has that promise for you. God still has that call for you and you will walk in it one day. All right. First Samuel 24 is the accounting last week or a couple weeks ago when I, when I preached last, I talked to you about David in the cave. With Adul- of Adullam, right? And this is when uh, Saul comes in to use the bathroom and, and David creeps up on him and takes a little bit of his cloak, right? And then when, when Saul leaves the cave, David appears and says, hey, I, I could have killed you, but I didn't, right? That was the first time. There's another situation similar to it, and I want to read the whole thing because I think it's powerful. First Samuel 26, starting in 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hachilah, which, uh, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So last we knew David had 400 guys, right? This is 3,000 guys coming after him. Saul encamped on the hill of Hachilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to a place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, son of of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the enemy was encamped around him. The army, not the enemy. Sorry, that's... All right. David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me to the camp of Saul. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. That's an interesting picture, don't you think? The army is lying around David to protect, around Saul rather, to protect him, right? Abner, right there, commander of the army, right next to Saul, making sure nothing happens to their king. David and Abishai creep up, and they see this. They see the army encamped around their king. Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down in battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Put yourself in this picture. Your enemy is right there. There's a spear next to his head. All you have to do is pick up the spear and he's done for, right? If you could just sneak through the, the army that's encamped around, which, you know, admittedly is a big feat. That's not necessarily going to be an easy thing. But presumably, if you could creep up, you could kill this guy. Now, if I'm David, I've got two options in my mind. One, I could actually do it, kill my enemy, be done with it, and fulfill my job, my role as king. That's an option, right? Another option is to say, eh, he's got an army around him. I think it's a little dangerous. I don't want to risk getting caught. Even if I do the thing, I'm, eh, maybe I'd better not. David takes the third option, right? He says, verse 12, or in, I'm sorry, verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now, take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Like, God delivered Saul into David's hands. He delivered him into his hands. God put a deep sleep on all these soldiers and the commander of the army so that they would not wake up. All David had to do was pick up the spear and fulfill his calling, right? And David picks up the spear, okay, and he gets the jar of water. I wonder what the water is for. I, I feel like there's probably a sermon there. I don't know. But verse 13, then David went over to the other side, stood far up off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you? Who calls the king? David said to Abner, are you not a man who, was like, who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, the king? <laughs> I can hear a little sarcasm in his voice. Oh, there's nobody quite like Abner. You do a really good job. Way to protect your king. <laughs> David said to Ab, um, I'm sorry, verse 16, this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now see what the king's spear is and the jar of water that was out of his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your, son, your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. This is the second time David compares himself to a flea. He does the first time in, in 1 Samuel 24 when he's at the cave. He says, Saul, I'm a nobody. Literally, I'm a little flea that you're after. Why are you after me? I'm nobody. I'm no, I'm no challenge to you. I'm no threat to you. I'm, I'm just the Lord's servant, and I'm here. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. Then David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. That must have hurt coming out. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And they all lived happily ever after, right? That's great. 
This beautiful story where David saves the life, he spares the life of Saul. And Saul recognizes that that's exactly done. And not only does David spare the life of Saul, he gives him the spear back. The spear that Saul would have readily used as a weapon against David, David does not return as a weapon against Saul, but he actually returns it back to him. Here, take your spear. This is recognition that I have no ill intent towards you. And so here you go. Take it back. And Saul says, you blessed be David. You're going to succeed. The very next chapter, 1 Samuel 27, actually I think it's two chapters later, but still, it's right afterwards. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. (laughs) I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but I have this, like, this is like the Elijah moment right here, where Elijah takes down all the prophets of Baal with this great victory, and then the very next thing he says is Jezebel's trying to kill me, right? This is David, like, God delivered Saul into David's hand. David does the right thing. He has full faith and trust in God. Saul's going to kill me. He's been living for how many years in the caves? But at this moment, he actually turns and runs. It says, there is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. He takes himself into exile, which is interesting. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him. So we've added some guys. Maybe they're more disgruntled, bitter people. I don't know. Uh, But again, 600 men, they've still got women and children with them. To Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. David lived with Achish and Gath, he and his men. Every man... Um, of his household, and David had his two wives. Okay. Oh, verse 4, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Okay, so I guess it worked. He moves to the land of the Philistines. He lives there for a time. Now, he's exiled in the land of the Philistines. We're not going to read any more of David's account, but the land of the Philistines obviously is not much better than the caves right? In fact, he has, to, he has to be deceitful while he's there, and, and it, it's, not, it's not an easy time. And it's while David is living in the land of the Philistines that Saul and Jonathan go into battle against the Philistines and are killed in battle. And it's after that that David is finally able to return to Israel. And it's well after that that David is finally appointed to the throne, all right? In fact, it is believed in total that, that David lived about eight years in the caves and in Philistine, in the land of the Philistines. Eight years after his banishment from Saul, which is in essence probably 17 years after his initial anointing and appointing by Samuel. 17 years, eight of them in the wilderness. Now, is there a lesson here? I believe there's a parallel between what Jesus does after his baptism and what David does after his anointing. David is anointed. He's told he's going to be king 17 years later. After living in the wilderness, after living in exile, he finally takes the throne. Jesus is anointed at his baptism after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. He is actually operating in that anointing. Interesting, right? Now, what does all of this have to do with the Beatitudes? Well, let's take a look at them now. Are you ready? Each Beatitude, let's look at them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Now, later on in Luke, we'll see in a couple of minutes that Luke actually just says poor. Is, are we talking about poor as in not having money? Or are we talking about poor in spirit, meaning something in me is poor? I think both. I think literally Jesus is saying, if you don't have any money, it's okay. You're blessed. Because there's things greater than money out there. And I believe he's saying, if you make yourself poor in spirit, you are blessed. According to the Got Questions website, which is a website I very much appreciate, I don't always agree with them theologically, but in as far as going there for some easy questions, answers to questions, it can be really helpful. They say this, 
To be poor in spirit is to recognize your utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. It is understanding that you have absolutely nothing of worth to offer God. Being poor in spirit is admitting that because of your sin, you are completely destitute spiritually and can do nothing to deliver yourself from your dire situation. How many of you are poor in spirit? (laughs) If you're not raising your hand, close your eyes, spend some time with Jesus right now and consider then raising your hand. Because we all ought to realize, David said to Saul, I am a flea. I am nothing. Apart from God and his work in your life, you are nothing. And if you don't recognize that, if you don't realize that you really, truly are destitute, that you really, truly are bankrupt apart from the Lord and his work in you, then you have some work to go home and do between you and God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, Luke says literally, blessed are the ones who cry. Blessed are those who weep. You'll laugh one day. What do we mourn over? Well, you might have actual reasons to cry right now. My dad's pretty sick. I've done some crying over that one. Right? Maybe your finances, maybe your physical condition, your health, maybe a relationship situation, you probably have a reason or two to cry. Maybe you don't have a reason to cry, and you're still crying. Anybody ever there? Okay, good. Not the only one. Blessed are those who mourn. Starting with our physical condition, God says, it's okay. Blessings. But then we take it a step farther, and we look at our spiritual condition, and we choose to mourn over our sin, over our lack of faithfulness to God, over the fact that because of the choices that we make or the idols that we have put in place, we don't do what we're called to do. We don't operate as we've learned over the last year how we're supposed to operate We mourn for ourselves, for things that are external coming against us, and we mourn for those internal things, the ones that we need to work on, the ones that we have to, have to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Have to address, have to take care of, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. According to Got Questions, it says this, meekness is humility toward God, and toward others. It's having the right or the power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else. Having the right or the power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else. Like David, who didn't kill Saul twice when he could have. I had the right to do it. Nobody would have questioned me if I'd killed my enemy right then and there because he was going to kill me. And yet, it was not for his benefit if I did that. In fact, when Saul finally does die in battle of his own, he actually takes his own life. David doesn't rejoice over that. He grieves it. It makes him so sad that that Saul is dead. He wails, he fasts, he rips his shirt. He says, this is not okay. And it was absolutely for his benefit that Saul died. But he was sad. Meekness is saying, I don't care what's best for me. I care about what's best for you. Meekness is absolutely recognizing your own place, your own situation. So it says, Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. (laughs) Did it make any sense for David to not kill Saul, knowing that his point, the the ultimate result was going to be that he was supposed to be king. David knew he was going to be king. Didn't everything in it point to the fact that he should have killed Saul because then he would finally achieve his goal. But no, if David had not been meek in that moment, God would not have exalted him to the kingship 
right? And it's the same for you and me. If we take what we think we deserve, or even what God has promised us, if we take it on our own and on our own terms, ignoring the benefit for somebody else and what they need, we're not going to inherit the earth. It's when we lay our rights down that God can exalt us. Blessed are the are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Luke says, blessed are the hungry, for they will be satisfied. Do you think it means physical hunger? I think Luke absolutely implies that Jesus is saying physical hunger. If you are physically hungry, you are blessed because God will fill you. He will satisfy you. And satisfaction from the Lord's hand so much more than satisfaction at my own, right? But Matthew takes it the next step, and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, right? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's the recognition, first, that I have physical hunger. I have physical needs that need to be met. I guarantee you, David, with 400 up to 600 men living in a cave, they were probably physically very hungry at a lot of the time, right? Physically, they had to rely on God for their daily bread in a way that you and I probably will never relate to, honestly, if we're being honest, yeah? But also there's this idea, this spiritual hunger. And David talks about it over and over in the Psalms, does he not? Where he's like, I long for you. My soul longs to be with you. I hunger and I thirst for your presence. I hunger and I thirst to be like you for righteousness, for justice, for justification. I hunger and I thirst. So there's a physical hunger there and there's a spiritual hunger there. Either way, when you approach God and ask him to relieve your hunger, like he did for David, he will for you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Like we study purity, right? It'd be a great study to do someday. Because read Leviticus. It's all about what it takes to be pure in the eyes of God, which by the way, you're never going to do, but thank God we have Jesus who did it for us. But that doesn't mean we don't go through purification processes. That doesn't mean we don't allow him to purify us. And purity in scripture is always linked, well not always, but often linked to either a fire situation or a pruning situation, right? So, 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 um, gold, for example, refined by heating it up really, really, really hot with fire so that you can take the impurities out or a tree that, that isn't growing properly or, or isn't producing fruit properly that needs to be pruned, that needs to have things taken away so that it can produce what it's supposed to produce. These are the metaphors for purity, right? So you, pure in heart, do you really want to be pure in heart? Do you really want to see God? If you really want to see God, you really want to be pure in heart, it's going to require some amount of fire, some amount of pruning. Yikes. For David, there was probably a whole lot of pruning, a whole lot of fire in those caves. Everything stripped from him. He had nothing laid bare before God. He has no bed. He has no pillow. He has no place to go to the bathroom. He has no food. It's all taken away from him. And yet, the Lord meets in there and he shows him who he is. He shows him who David is. He shows him who he's called to be in that time of purification in the wilderness. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. David absolutely demonstrated mercy, did he not? Um, one of the readings that we sent out in the devotions this week was from an organization called Crew. And one of the things they pointed out is that God is obligated to show justice. 
as who he is, a holy, righteous God, he has to be just. He can be nothing but just. But it is his prerogative to show mercy. He gets to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. You and I, however, we don't have that prerogative. We do not get to choose who we get to show mercy to. Because if we do not choose to show mercy, it will not be shown to us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. You want mercy for you? You go ahead and show it to your enemy who's trying to kill you. Then you might get some mercy back. Isn't that amazing? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now this is where David trips up a little bit, right? He was not a man of peace. He was a man of war. It was his son who was a man of peace. But as much as David was not a man of peace because of his circumstances, he was, I am assuming, reading into these scriptures in 1 Samuel, we see all kinds of peace that God bestows on David and through David to the people that he comes in contact with, and he longs for peace. In Isaiah 52, it says, How lovely on the mountain are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. And in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that you and I are to shod ourselves, our feet with what? Or put on our feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is peace. And King David is the first in the line of the gospel, right? He is the one through whom God would bring ultimate peace in the form of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And when David returns to Jerusalem, finally, one day, after the death of Saul, after the overthrow of Ishbosheth, when David ascends to the throne, he establishes in Israel a time of peace. He makes peace for his nation. That is what you and I are called to do. Bring peace. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Was David unfairly persecuted? Absolutely. We can all see that, right? God had called and chosen David, and because of that calling, and only because of that calling, Saul pursues him and decides to try to kill him. And again, he lives in the caves. He lives in, the, in exile in the Philistine, land of the Philistines. He was persecuted not for what he did, but just because of who he was and who God was in him. Now, we're going to talk about this in a second, but I just want to say, if you have been persecuted because of who you are and who God is in you and what you're doing for his kingdom, yours is the kingdom of heaven, just like it was for David. And God will establish his kingdom through you on the earth, even as those who persecute you try to take away your life or your resources or your reputation or whatever. God will come in and he will sustain you. And Jesus says, you get to be blessed if you're persecuted because they persecuted the prophets. And guess what? They're going to persecute me. And it is an honor for you to be like me. Right? Now, let's pull it all together. We have spent a good amount of time studying who we, who God is and who we are in him. Right? Just like the anointing and appointing of King David, just like the anointing and appointing of Jesus at baptism, I hope and pray that over the last year you have received some sort of revelation about who you are in Christ and what your purpose is, what his plan is for your life, what his mission is for you. And if you have not gotten there, it's okay. Sometimes God reveals it in little tiny pieces here and there. But at the very least, you know who you are and whose you are. So I pray for my kids all the time. I want them to know who they are and whose they are. Have you gotten a revelation over the last year about who you are and whose you are? Yeah? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Then maybe you can expect that the devil probably isn't going to like that. 
probably you can expect that there are going to be enemies out there who are going to try and take that from you, who are going to try and keep you from walking in that calling. Is that fair to assume? All right. What is your answer to that? What is your answer to your enemy? What is your answer to the devil? I am blessed. I am poor in spirit. I make myself bankrupt before the Lord. I am meek. I recognize my utter inability to do what I've been called to do. I mourn because I look at my sin and I recognize that I have done so many things that I wasn't supposed to do and I'm not doing what I should do. I am hungering and thirsting for righteousness because A, I have this physical need that needs to be met, but also I recognize I have a spiritual need that God only can meet in me. I am pure, being purified in the fire. I'm being pruned. All those things that I don't need are being taken away. I offer myself as a a deliverer of peace, and I recognize that I'm going to likely be persecuted as I stand before the world and before my enemy, and they don't like what's happening. All right? So we've spent time, or we are sometimes, we are possibly spending time in the wilderness right now. Like Jesus, who did exactly the same thing, because in Philippians 2, it says that he laid aside who he was, and he took on himself the form of a servant, and he came in likeness as man. He became obedient to death on the cross. Jesus and King David, they demonstrated to us what wilderness walk was like, right? And then what happens as we are delivered through the wilderness, as we are delivered from our enemies, what happens next? Exciting things, right? You are now delivered so that you get to be elevated to the kingship. You get to walk in your calling. Everything goes right in the world. Uh, pe- you know, like it's just a beautiful time for you. You get royal robes and thrones and all the women you want, right? It's all good. Is that what happened to King David? Interestingly, he still goes through some significantly troubling times, right? But I think it's, some of it is interesting because it's when time is good, when he gets kind of comfortable, that that happens. So specifically, when Bathsheba, when he's tempted with and succumbs to Bathsheba, It's, if you go back and read it, it says, at the time when kings go to war, David went out on a rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. He wasn't working anymore. He took a break. Now, don't don't get me wrong. Taking a break is really good. I just took two weeks of break with my family. I needed that break. I told somebody... I told Ethan when I got down there, I said, I feel like a soda can that's been shaken for two months straight with all the pressures and all the things I have to do. And I got like literally crossed the border into Florida. It was like somebody popped the top and I was like, for a few days straight, right? So yes, please take a break. Rest is given by God. It's his gift. But complacency is not a gift of God. And not walking in your calling, definitely not a gift from God. And in David, when he stopped working and walking in his call, that's when the temptation that he did not rise above came, right? It's when he got comfortable. And in Luke chapter 6, Luke gives this this warning that Matthew doesn't, because Luke says this in his accounting of the Beatitudes, verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Sounds similar to Matthew, right? But let's keep going. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 
Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Interesting. All right? The kingdom of God is upside down. The, the message Jesus brought is completely different from what the world would tell you. You're meek, you're going to inherit the earth. You're hungry, you'll be full. You're full, you'll be hungry. Now, this isn't, I don't believe, saying that if you have money, you're actually going to be, you know, like, enjoy it because it's all you're ever going to get. If you're full, you're going to be hungry one day. I mean, we know that this is true, right? Being full now doesn't mean I'm not going to be hungry tomorrow. Laughing now doesn't mean I won't cry tomorrow. That's reality, right? But Jesus is saying, listen, what you guys consider blessings, that's not where the blessing lies. Being rich, being full, having everything you want, being king is not where the blessing lies. The blessing comes in the wilderness when I'm training you and I'm purifying you and I'm teaching you and you depend on me. When I was first diagnosed with cancer, all right, 11 years ago, Terry Belanza looked at me and she said to me, believe it or not, this is going to be one of the greatest blessings you ever experience in your life. And I was like, lady, what the heck are you talking about? You are crazy. And she said, no, 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 I had cancer. It was the, God brought his greatest blessings to me through having had cancer. I am who I am because of that cancer. I am who I, not because of the cancer. Don't let me say it like that. That's not what she said. Not because of the cancer, but because of how God met her and what he worked in her through her treatments, through her experience, through her pressing into him because she was sick. Amen, says Ginger having had the same thing, right? And I can tell you, 11 years later, I was never closer to the Lord than when I was sick because I knew my next breath depended on him. Whether I could eat dinner depended on him. Whether I made it through the next day depended on him. And it's, I was sort of thinking about the Beatitudes like vegetables, right? Like, we would all really enjoy it if cinnamon buns could be our main food source, right? If we could receive all the nutrients that we could possibly have from apple pie, trust me, we would eat nothing but apple pie, right? But that's not how God operates. It's not how our bodies operate. We have to recognize that sometimes what we think is good for us, it's not, and what is good for us is what we really don't want. And I want to suggest this to you. You don't go through being pure in heart and being poor in spirit and mourning and being meek and being merciful and making peace only for yourself. Again, back to being sick. When I was sick with cancer, I was sick and it was hard for me. But when God brought me through it, and he brought me to new life, and he showed me all these things and these revelations about who he was and about who I am and about what his plan was for my life, I cannot tell you how often I have been allowed and privileged to speak into someone else's life saying the same messages. Just as Terry did for me, I have done for other people. I get phone calls. I was just diagnosed. Help. What's next? And those of you who are in wilderness times right now, who have been in wilderness times, God did not bring it through, bring you through for the sole benefit of making you this wonderful person, which by the way, you are. And by the way, he did. But that's not what it's for. It wasn't what God brought Jesus through the wilderness for. Because the second he gets out of the wilderness, he begins his ministry. It's not what God brought David through the wilderness for. Because the minute he gets out of the wilderness, he steps into his ministry as the king of the entire nation. And it's not whatever wilderness you are in right now. It is not only so that you can inherit the kingdom of God, so that you can see God, so that you can be a child of God. It's not only for that. Just like David and just like Jesus, it is for the purpose of your blessing the world. You are blessed so that you can be 
a blessing. That is the intention. It was the intention for David, and it is the intention, the intention for you and for me. I'll end with the story. When I was really sick, I was here. I, I taught here at the time. And um, we had a chapel time in the morning, right here. We'd all stand around in a circle and praise the Lord. Pastor Rodney would lead us, and we'd sing worship songs to start our day. And I was having a bad day because I wasn't feeling that great. And I was here. Sorry. I was here. Probably you're standing right about here. And a lady named Mary Taylor, who many of you know, was in here that day. She would come. She'd drop her kid off. She'd stick around for worship. And I left the room, and I didn't have a class right away. So I went downstairs, and I went to the bathroom, and I was just feeling sick. Kind of probably how my dad feels right now. And Mary looked at me, and she said, Amy, I was in chapel with you just now. And God point brought your face like I looked at you. And God said, tell her she was born and bred in the briar patch. Now, maybe you know what she's talking about, but I did not know. I didn't know what she was talking about. Born and bred in the briar patch. Um, Mr. Remus, do you guys ever read any of his fables? Right? He told a lot of stories about Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear, right? And um, if you don't know them, you should go read them. They're pretty, pretty great. A lot of truth in them. And the story of Br'er, Br'er Rabbit always being pursued by Br'er Fox, right? And Fox manages to catch Rabbit in tar. And he's trapped. And finally, Fox has him and is about to cook him for dinner. And he grabs Rabbit by the ears, and he's telling him all the ways that he, maybe I'll skin you, and maybe I'll hang you, and you're, you're going to die. And, and uh, Rabbit looks over, and he sees this briar patch with thorns and thistles, and it, you know, it looks completely dead over there, right? And, and rabbits, a fox says to rabbit, I'm going to, I'm going to hang you from your, from your neck and then I'm going to cook you. And rabbit, and rabbit says, go ahead and do that, Br'er Fox, but please, do whatever you do, don't throw me into that briar patch over there. Don't throw me there. You go ahead and hang me, but don't throw me there. And then, and then rabbit, or fox says, oh, I've got a better idea. I'll skin you and then I'm going to cook. And he goes, well, that's fine. You go ahead and skin me, Br'er Fox, but don't just, whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. And all of a sudden, Fox goes, ooh, I have a great idea. I think I'll throw you into that briar patch over there. Like, he sees the thorns and the thistles and all of that. And he takes Br'er Rabbit, and he throws him into the briar patch. And the briar patch serves to remove all the tar off of the rabbit and all of his entanglements. And then Br'er Rabbit escapes through the briar patch, and he comes out the other side, and he hollers to Br'er Fox. He says, didn't you realize I was born and bred in the briar patch? I was born and bred in the briar patch. What the fox intended for the rabbit's harm in that wilderness of the briar patch served to remove the entanglements around rabbit to free him to loose him and to let him go. And Mary looked at me and she said, you may be in the briar patch, Amy, but you were born and bred for this briar patch. And it was true. It was so, so true. And if it's true for me and it was true for David and it's true for Jesus, then it's true for you. You see, our real troubles, really, come, we, they come when we know, don't know who we are, when we don't recognize who we are as God's children. But they also come when we have this inflated sense of who we are, when we think we are greater than what we are called to do. And the wilderness and the Beatitudes served to show us who we truly are, dependent on God, needing him, hungering, thirsting, poor, sad, being refined, all of that, that's who we truly are. And I dare say, before we undertake the calling God has on our life, we got to know what he's called us to, what he's bringing us through. 
And it's more than that because we need to revisit this lesson all the time. We need to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. We need to recognize that he's calling us to walk in peace, to walk in humility and meekness, to hunger and thirst for him. Right? As the worship team comes up and Ben gets ready, I'm just going to pray this over us. Father, we are eternally grateful for your word that you show us that we do not grasp to be equal with God. We do not grasp to be equal with kings. We willingly make ourselves of no reputation as Jesus did, and we humble ourselves and become servants, even unto death, even to death on a cross, which was meant to be a curse. Man intended the cross for curse. But Jesus redeemed the cross as the ultimate blessing. And we submit ourselves to your blessings, not the ones that come when we manufacture our way, then when we fill ourselves, when we fight and we kill our enemies, but the blessings that come from full submission to you. Work out our Um, our weaknesses. May we recognize that we are nothing apart from you, but with you, we can do all things. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.